0: The views expressed by individuals on this program are their own and do not represent any organization, the Army National Guard, or the Army writ large. Welcome to Leaders Recon, we will be discussing leadership, warrior skills, and other unique opportunities within the G3 leader development branch. I'm your host, Joshua Carr. And today we're going to be discussing the Army Congressional Fellowship Program with Major Sands. Major Sands, welcome to the program.
1: Appreciate you having me. For those
0: that are not as familiar with your background, I know that everyone has a different reason for why
1: they were interested in joining the military um, with all different backstories. What was yours? Yeah, so when I was growing up, um, Desert Storm was in the early 1990s. I was in grade school. I had an uncle that served in Desert Storm. And just the military was a part of our family. My great-grandfathers both served in World War I. Um, so it was, service was always kind of connected to our, our family. And as I was getting older uh, in throughout the 1990s, I became more and more interested in the military. And then uh, in 2000, I decided to join uh, it as it was pre-911 at that point i decided if i wanted to i wanted to try out the guard to see if i would enjoy the military Uh, while i went to college at the same time i made a promise to my mom that i would finish school uh she knew if i just went and joined the army that i would probably never come back and go to school she knew i would just fall in love with it and and Mm -hmm. her dream was always make sure that i got my college education so we i joined when i was 17 so i had to have her sign and my dad sign that was kind of our agreement and then i just ended up falling in love with the guard and did a, a deployment when I was in college um, after 9-11 and you know, just fell in love with the, the soldiers I worked with and decided to make a career in the, in the Guard. Huh, so so you enlisted then straight out of high school? Yeah, I was a senior in high school. I was 17. I joined on my 17th birthday. So actually this October, I'll be 37 and I'll have my 20-year letter. So uh, oh, wow. it's pretty pretty unique to be able to retire if you wanted to at 37, but I, I enjoy it. I love it and to keep going, but yeah. That's a pretty cool background. So before we dive into...
0: Kind of your experiences as a congressional fellow. Um, Can you kind of give us an overview of like, I've heard it's a 44 month program, but like, what does that
1: 44 months consist of? Absolutely. So, the Army Congressional Fellowship is actually ran by the headquarters department of the Army. There's 26 fellows currently right now that get selected. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's very competitive. Typically, there's you know a few hundred, several hundred applicants that apply for the fellowship. And three of the fellows are always from the National Guard. Okay. Three are from the reserves. So we have a good mix of compost within the, the fellowship and experiences. So the fellowship is broken down essentially into three phases. And the first phase is academic phase. So once you get selected, you PCS to, to DC and you go to George Washington University and you get a, a master's degree in legislative affairs. Oh, wow. And then during that time, you're Taking advantage of the academic experience you're sitting through think tank discussions and conversations you're going to different events that they send out through AUSA and other organizations to hear leaders talk get ingrained in the defense community uh, and then the following year that january after you start your your, uh, your education portion and then on january 1st you get assigned to an office either on the senate or the house and that's with a member of congress that has defense equities or is on a committee of oversight for the department of defense Um, So it's usually half and half, half go to the House, half go to the Senate, and then you serve for one year as a member of that staff. The member of Congress is your Raider and your Senior Raider. Like your whole intent is to work on their priorities and their issues and help them. You're there to build commonality and understanding, build understanding and relationships with that office. So they get an understanding of, hey, these are what soldiers are, these are who they are, this is how they, they operate, this is their experience. They know someone they can rely on, it brings transparency to the Department of Defense. And then the same for the, for us is we learn how they work. We appreciate, you know, the processes that they go through. We appreciate, you know, their, their viewpoints and this very unique relationship between the civilian oversight of the department of defense. Um, and then you bring that back to your, to your kit bag, if you will. And you for that one year and at the following the, following that one year on the Hill, you transition back to what they call the utilization phase. And that's for two years. And those two years you work somewhere. In the legislative affairs, either for the National Guard Bureau legislative liaison shop um, or for the headquarters part of the Army, they have the office of the chief chief of legislative liaison. So you can get a position somewhere in there doing legislative liaison work and using those relationships with Congress. So is that, and that's the the part of the fellowship that you're in right now, correct? Correct, yep. So I'm in uh, what they call the programs division within the office of chief of of legislative liaison. And what that means is... I have a portfolio I'm responsible for, okay. and they, they take the Army's portfolio, they break it up, and we work with the authorizers mm-hmm. on both the House and Senate, and we work on programmatic issues uh, with Congress. So if they have questions, they come to us. We work with the Army staff or the Secretariat to re- reply and provide them answers to their questions, and then vice versa. We, we provide them notifications of things that the department is doing. We build relationships, and then we also, whenever they go on congressional delegation trips or staff delegation trips, Anywhere to visit any Army equity, uh, we, we take them on those trips as well, too, so they can see, get out, and actually f- you know feel and touch what the Army is doing and visit the soldiers. And as they're considering things within the National Defense Authorization Act, they actually can see, okay, what does it mean when I'm providing additional funds for this program or this initiative or this exercise? Let me go see the soldiers doing this training and see how they're building right Yeah, I get that now. hands-on
0: experience almost. Exactly, exactly. So, so like... Obviously, you have the suit as the uniform bidet. Yes. Um every time I'm around seeing the legislative folks around you see them all rocking the suits you know when they come up back and forth with their visits yep. um, can you explain that what is that you know well you know you wear the suit is that the whole program or what 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 what's the mindset yep. behind that
1: so you wear it throughout the entire program um, when you're on the hill you absolutely wear it because you are there to be a member of that staff right you were there to work for leadership in that office and you don't want to stick out, right? you wear the uniform every day. Um, you do get treated a little bit different on the hill, right? And in a positive, a very positive way. But you, you want to be a member of that team, right? Like any, any team within the military, the army, right? You, you build in cohesion, esprit de corps. and So you, when you're wearing this all day, um, it allows you to fully integrate and they view you as a member of our team together, right? Not the, hey, he's the defense fellow. Eventually they, they you know, the good people that build good relationships, that line will be blurred in their mind, in the staff's mind, and you're just a member of of their team, okay? And then the same when we're working on, um, when we come to utilization phase, we continue to wear suits. And again, that's we are trying to, break down that relationship and, and they see us as, hey, I'm Richie, right? I'm not Major Sands, I'm, I'm Richie. I can talk to Richie, get answers. We're building relationships. He's someone that I can go to and, and I trust to get information from or receive information from it and really talk through complex ideas and issues. And it's a lot easier to do that when you're in in a suit, and also when you're navigating the halls of Congress as well. Too, you just kind of blend in with your surrounding, and you're able to to get around effectively and talk and communicate with folks, and just really break it down to a personal level. Yeah, you you
0: mentioned a couple times relationships when you were talking there. You know, you want to kind of highlight what you know seems like that's an important part of your role as a defense fellow. You want to kind of talk a little bit about about those experiences you've had with that. That's,
1: That's the biggest biggest key for success for me is the relationships that I have and I build right <clears throat> true real relationships help you effectively communicate and what's going on especially when there's you know tough times or tough issues that come up right um, so my whole goal and the way I gauge my own success is how effectively am I building relationships with staff members on the hill right how, how am I able to communicate with them do they feel comfortable coming to me with issues if they hear something can they come to me first and discuss that issue before it becomes a larger problem, right? Mm-hmm. Can, we, can we talk about it on the staff level? Do they have that, that, that comfort to, to bring it to me and, and discuss it? And also, you know, if they want to go see something or, or visit an equity, you want them to, to think, hey, I need to go see this exercise at this country at this time. I want them to know that, hey, they can come to the Army, request that, because as we go on, the, on these you know delegation trips with them, we're just from that better understanding. We're able to talk about the Army and the National Guard's priorities. We're able to effectively work those as we're building these relationships. And the message is better received when you're able to have a close relationship versus just a, hey, I know there's a guy over there I need to talk to, right? Yeah. So.
0: so kind of backtracking a little bit then. At the beginning, you said
1: the first phase was education
0: phase. Can you explain a little bit about your time as a student?
1: Yeah, so... It was an amazing opportunity this is something that's unique all the services have fellows mm-hmm. okay um the army is the only service with the army F- congressional fellowship program where you're able to not able where you are required to go to school and get your master's degree in legislative affairs and the program that we go through at george washington is designed for hill staffers that are or those wanting to be a Hill staffer to gr- to get a graduate understanding of Congress okay. and how it works. So our classes are taught by former members of Congress, former staff members, current staff members. Um, there's a couple that were former fellows that were in there, uh, former lobbyists, oh, wow. very successful people. And they bring in guest speakers from the Hill. They bring in very senior staff members to talk to you, to educate you, to train you as well To And then the class is made up, the classes, are made up of, of you know, the, the fellows, but also, you know, three quarters or so are actual students from the Hill or those wanting to be on the Hill. Oh, really? So you're you're getting their experience. Does you these group conversations in an educational environment, academic environment, where they're talking about their experiences currently on the Hill? And you just really, truly appreciate and understanding not just how is it, does the Congress designed to work, but how does it actually work? Mm-hmm. Um, so class was it was in the evenings to accommodate the Hill staffers uh, that were taking classes is located right in Capitol Hill, extremely rewarding. And then when we went to go on the Hill and transition, we had a very good understanding much more than our peers and their services, exactly how does Congress work and how can I be effective and just who are the key players? How are things made up? What's the composition of the offices? What's the difference between, you know, the Senate Armed Services Committee versus the Senate Appropriations Committee, what's roles and responsibilities, constitutionally? Um, what's their divide? And, and why do we why does it matter to us? And how do how can we effectively work with them? Um, you know, so it's, it's a very, very unique program. And half of it's required coursework. Um, the other half is electives. And those electives are, are built, some of them are built around the defense industry, about the budget process. Mm-hmm. So when you come away, you're able to that language like capitol hill just like the department of defense we have our own acronym right we have our own acronyms that we can lose people on really quickly capitol hill is no different there's buzzwords there's there's uh vernacular they use where you can get lost very quick if you don't understand it in that academic year made it so when you go up there you you can kind of understand what they're talking about what's going on so um when you get to the office you might not be running at all but you're at least able to walk maybe jog and by the time you're done with that one year, you feel very comfortable working in that environment. So do you have any background before? I know
0: as guardsmen, you know, we have all different backgrounds. I, I spent a few years as a civilian working on the political side a little bit. Yeah. What was your kind of background before before coming to
1: the Hill, anything? Or? None. Zero. I hadn't taken a class on US government since I was in high school because there's a requirement to graduate, right? That I didn't take a single political science degree um, this was a, an opportunity that my brigade commander, when I was a battalion S3, we were deployed. He had worked in OCLL on the Army staff, and he had recommended it as a broadening assignment. Huh. So I, he started talking to me about what it meant, what it is. I did some research, and realized that something I was interested in doing for a broadening opportunity. Um, it was something that was you know highly competitive, which was a draw for me. I wanted to um, you know see how how that process worked, and then and compete. Mm-hmm. Uh, successful and very fortunate to be uh selected and when i did i, I legitimately bought uh and it's funny because there's like four or five other people that have told me they did the same thing within the fellowship we we purchased the congress for dummies book on amazon just to make sure that we were like brush, brushing off that surface rust because it had been so long since we yeah. talked about some of these issues of processes exactly and um, yeah, you know, I told people that I kind of jokingly, a lot of them piped up and was like, well, I did the same. Like don't feel don't feel bad, like I was there with you, right? Because they don't want people applying for the program that they don't just want people to apply for the program that are extremely educated in politics. That's that's not the whole point. Mm-hmm. The point is to bring a unique perspective, broad experiences mm-hmm. to the Hill, to the fellowship. So when you look at each fellowship cohort of twenty-six fellows, okay. The branches are very wide, ranging. Right, you have artillery, infantry, combat arms. We have a, a nurse. We have a couple of medical services corps. You know, you have engineers. It's, it's so spread really out
0: just across the whole formation.
1: Exactly. They want. You know, we have cyber. Um, so it's exactly. They're, they're not. Everyone. Every single corps has a jag and one da civilian. So it's as wide as they can cast to bring all those experiences together to show Congress varying and and well,
0: that probably helps you guys too, right? On um, being able to you know the fellow to call about, whatever.
1: Yeah, exactly, because you're you're leaning on each other for their experiences, right? And that's what's good about the academic years. You get to know your other fellows uh, throughout that year in a very relaxed setting, an academic setting. Um, And that way, when you go to the Hill, you you can work together to network to help, again, educate each other, bring understanding, share your experiences, because your experience in the Hill, it varies.
0: Yeah, so talking about going to the Hill, you you replace with a member of Congress. What you, you can you talk about that a little bit and like how that placement process works? Do you get to pick a member and be
1: like, hey, I want to go there, um, or how does that work? No, I, it's, it's fantasy football. I'm not gonna lie to you. It's, that's the easiest way to describe it. That's how we're told. It's like a fantasy football draft. Um, so as you're getting ready in the fall before your transition to the Hill, so about October time frame, um, DOD actually leads the effort initially. Okay. They send out a call to all the members of Congress that are on a Defense Oversight Committee, and they say, if you're interested in receiving a Department of Defense fellow, please send us a letter. Let us know what experiences you're looking for. And then all the services get together with DOD, and they look at all the letters they receive from members of Congress, and they say, okay, who's gonna have, you know, which service is gonna have a fellow with these offices? Which one do you want, right? They they go through this whole process um, together. Uh, and OSD oversees, you know, which ones make the best sense, right? And it's not just with the Senate or House Appropriations Committee or the Senate and House Armed Services Committees, right? You, you got to make sure also with members of Congress, you're, you're getting the ones that, um, you know, set in form relations, you know, intel. You, know, you want to make sure that you're, you're, again, you're getting a wide net to show those experiences and you're shifting around to make sure that you're uh, yep. working with different members. So OSD and the departments do that together. And then they uh, send us the list, the Army, says, hey, these are the 26 offices that through the selection process with OSD that we have. And we rank them first all the way from number one to 26. And then you write a little synopsis of why did you select them? Why did you rank them, right? What's your interest Hmm. Um, for your top three and your bottom three, right? What made you want these offices? What made you not want these offices? and uh, you go through a, a board process and you explain that in your interests and then they take that into consideration and then the army looks at your experiences versus what the members were, were requesting and they kind of try, ma- to, match try to match it up right and there's you know there's sometimes you get your one pick as the fellow but it's also the, the needs of the, the army um, you know, for instance, there was one member of Congress that wanted to have a logistician. They had a, had a depot in their district, and they had some questions on the depot, and they said, "Hey, if I have a logistical officer in my office, they can help that. They speak that language, right?" Another member happened to say, "Hey, I have a lot of medical issues that I'm receiving from constituents. I heard there's a you know a nurse or medical services officer." coming up you know I'd like to have a nurse you know and so that kind of play match they yeah, so, get that experience that they're looking for exactly because it helps them understand the issues and then respond to constituents and that's what it's all about right keeping the constituents happy
0: yeah so how about that like you know I, I kind of mentioned some of my background before right like I I had to balance because I was a political appointee right so I had to balance you know my a job as a political appointee and as a drilling soldier, right. you know, as a military officer as well, um, right at the start of my career. And so, you know, looking at the same thing, I guess for you, asking that question, you know, how do you balance, you know, working in one of these offices, especially with some of the, you know, high politically charged climates, um, and your role as a,
1: as a defense fellow. Absolutely. So you take an oath of office, right, and you never break that oath. And one thing that that we learned throughout the school pre- phase, and something I came to appreciate was. The personal offices here in DC, those are not the political offices of the members of Congress, right? Um, they are there as personal staff to work on policy. Now, they're always, obviously the politics are in the back of their mind, but they are—they're not the campaign staff, right? That's by law separated. So they're just working on issues up here in Congress, help to advocate for their districts, for their members, for their constituents. So as you're working up here and you remember that staff, that's where you work on your your advising on policy, not on politics, and you have to make sure that you don't cross that line. It's, it's the uh, there's a there's a f- fine line there that you got to avoid. Um, but for a lot of us, you know, when we sat down with our, our staffs, when we first got assigned, just make that clear, right? You know, over a you know, cup of coffee, you know, have a very, you know, low key conversation Just make sure they are aware, like, hey, if there's any time that I feel like you're talking more, you know, from a political angle or a discussion, like I can't violate my oath. So I will either defer or I'll just stay quiet um but the you know my experience was they never put you in that position right they didn't they understood that they they, yeah. they knew what your role was there and that was to be a policy advisor to, to staff to the member on defense related issues or veteran related mm-hmm. issues right you weren't there to be a politician you're not you're not a politician right so um it's 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 it was uh, very rewarding to work with the staffs and they understood your position yeah. and they really appreciate your experiences and they understand the situation you're in. So so talking about rewarding experiences, I'm
0: sure you had a lot of memorable experience on the Hill. What, it, yeah. you know, what, what stands out to you the most? Or can you give us an
1: example of like one of your most memorable or, yeah. uh, experiences? Absolutely. So um, when I was looking to go to the, the Hill, I wanted to go to, some, to an office that was on a Senate Armed Services Committee. Because they are the ones that, um, first of all, this interests me. But they also have uh, requirements for the confirmation process. Um, the Senate, just the way that they they were made up, was more appealing to me. Mm-hmm. Um, the staffs are a little bit larger, so you get a mile deep on issues of understanding, but maybe an inch wide okay. because there's so many staffers they can spread out their workload. In the House, you know, the staffs are a lot smaller, so you're kind of a mile working a mile deep and an yeah. inch wide in your understanding. So. I wanted to the Center of Services Committee, and I also knew because when I was on the when I was in uh, the academic phase, that's when President Trump had announced that he wanted to initiate the Space Force. All right, so I, I knew that I, was gonna, I knew that the consideration and the policy was going to start with the Center of House Armed Services Committees, okay. right? So I wanted to, wanted to do the SASC because it had two, it met all the criteria that I wanted. So last year, um, one of the most rewarding things you can do as a fellow or a staff member is help create your boss's position on a topic or an issue. Okay. And it's very difficult with members that have been in for a long time because they've already kind of set their position. Their positions are known, um, but Space Force was new. Mm-hmm. And I got to work for um, an amazing office. I worked for Senator Gary Peters from Michigan. He's on the Senate Armed Services Committee. And Space Force, last year, as we were considering, we had a hearing on Space Force and as a staff, we really were working with the Senator to understand where his thoughts were and educate him and really help craft that position, right? And and get his feedback. So it was provide information, get feedback, bring additional information, get more feedback, try and determine where the boss's position was on certain things. And then sit through the Space Force the hearing, where it was the Secretary of Defense and the the Chairman, Joint Chiefs of Staff. Um, It was amazing to watch that process unfold of having a hearing. Where they were talking specifically about creating a new branch of the military, right, okay. regardless of whether you, if you wanted to see space force created or not, it didn't matter, right just the the historic process uh, you know they hadn't done that since the Air Force was yeah. created, so it was it, you know it was like I said, it says once in a 70 year yeah. opportunity to, to get to be a part of something like that exactly, so it was it was amazing to see that unfold um, through the through the legislative process last year. So
0: then, you know, coming off of these experiences, you know, looking forward now, you know, has it changed any of your goals, you know, as a military officer, kind of career path stuff, or you know, how did it how did it affect your perspective?
1: Well, I think it's two different questions there, right? Okay. Perspective versus my my career goals, right? Um, it hasn't shifted my career goals. Uh, you know, I, I still have a, a path that I want to see myself on, but I think it's very important to broaden yourself and your understanding, right? um to become a professional soldier professional officer Mm -hmm. to think holistically about issues and topics and then truly understand how the civilian oversight of our military is conducted and done and their perspective uh and how they view things through their own lens right um and then build those relationships as well too so you know being a fellow and then transition to being a battalion s3 or battalion commander right um you know there's you just think holistically about topics and you're able to help develop your subordinates as you transition right so hasn't changed my career path it's enhanced it it's enhanced my love for the department from for my country uh absolutely gave me a unique perspective a new perspective and appreciation for how things in capitol hill work Um, when the cameras are off and seeing how staffs and members interact and discuss topics to sit in a meeting you know, I was very fortunate on uh, multiple times, I got to sit in meetings behind closed doors with the Senator, our staff, and then almost every principal leader in DOD last year. And hearing those closed door conversations and through osmosis, essentially, right, just yeah. absorbing um, how that interaction and their thoughts behind a closed door was invaluable to help me develop as an officer mm-hmm. moving forward. Um, so it kind of gets into perspective, right? A new perspective, a, a new understanding and a true appreciation for the sacrifices and the service that even the Hill staffers make. You don't, you don't realize how young they are. Um, really, they start off very low paying jobs, You know, but they're very dedicated to their country regardless of what side of the aisle they're on. They're all patriots and they all, they all try to do what they think is best for their, their constituents and for the country and to see how they start and to hear the stories of coming up and doing unpaid internships. Highly educated, you know, very, very, very intelligent people uh, coming up here and taking small odd jobs to, with a hope or a dream of getting a member to, you know, to work for a member and build their, their resume and their career up through that. I mean, it's a very grassroots approach. Um, several people I worked with last year told me they, they moved here from California, from Michigan or from Chicago without a job is moved out here mm-hmm. hoping to find a member that would give them an internship of an unpaid job so they could build a resume to get in, to get an office. Um, it's just something you don't think about or you don't hear about. And yeah, I feel like, I feel like it's not, you know, really well-known fact like, Hey, who, who are
0: the staff up there? Talking about that a little bit, you know, I feel like not a lot of people have a good understanding of like, what is a staffer on the Hill, you know, and the different types of staffers, personal and professional. Can you kind of give us an overview of, you know, what is that demographic and, you know, how are those two separate?
1: Yeah, so what you have is you have personal staff that works for the members of Congress in their office. And then the committees have committee staff or professional staff members. So the, the personal staff, um, again, is a little bit unique based on the House versus the Senate because the House offices are somewhat smaller. Um, you know, they range from five to ten people in the office that work for the member and all the constituent issues and, and policy issues right so they're very busy um and then the senate a little bit larger i, I think you know 20 to 30 depending on the office i'm a little okay. bit larger uh what you'll see is the house average age is a little bit lower um you know it's like mid to low 20s is the average age of a hill staffer in the house oh, wow. as you know mid to upper 20s low 30s on the, on the senate side i forget the exact um statistic but you know, it's a lot younger than you think it is. So you were like an old man then in the I on was, the hill. I, I was definitely an old man. Yeah, there. I mean, there's a couple. You know, some of the senior staff members, or you know, the chiefs of staff and such. You know, they, they have a little more experience, kind of like what what I do. But yeah, yeah when, you're, when you're blending in, you're you're a little bit older. But you know, you, you just gain a different appreciation of. Hmm. You know, when, when you're out in the force yeah. and you have a, a delegation come and visit you, a Tourier, right? Whether it's congressional delegation or staff delegation, um, it'd be easy for a senior leader in the Army to see these very young staffers and just have that perspective of, you know, this just, just a young person, right? Having done this now, complete appreciation and understanding of how extremely intelligent and smart they are in issues. There's staff members that I would take up against um, senior 06s and, and several general officers and say they they could hold the water, if not do better in terms of talking about issues with multi-do- oh, wow. multi-domain operations, the national defense strategy. You know, they have a very holistic appreciation and understanding of the issues. Hmm. Um, you know, modernization efforts, acquisition process, like it is incredible to hear how quickly they pick it up and how much they understand and know. So that's the, the oh, wow. personal staff for the members. Um, professional staff, uh, they are a lot more experienced, right? Again, they, they have policy, they have portfolios within the committees that they manage. Um, their age, I don't know that the average age, but it's, it's higher. You know, A lot of doctors, you know, PhDs, doctorates. You have former political appointees from the Department of Defense to go over there um, and serve as a professional staff member. You have a lot of retired, you know, 06s and above. They get hired in after they've done some less day work or whatnot. Um, People like transition from some of the think tanks that come over. I mean, just extremely intelligent, highly qualified, highly educated people. And that's one of the best parts about the fellowship is learning from them and getting to know them and hearing their perspective on things. So, you know, kind of talking about that a little bit, how
0: has all of your experiences and, you know, relationships that you've developed over the course of the fellowship so far, um, shifted your viewpoint on like, strategic thinking or or how you're going
1: to approach your next assignment whatever that is it's enhanced it considerably right there are tools in my kit bag i now have from seeing where they get information how they process information um that is able to pick up and use now and will continue to do Hmm. you just um some of the some of the reports and tools that are out there that you just gloss over, don't know exists, you know, it's a different culture that you just don't, don't come to appreciate, realize until you've experienced it, until you're in the middle of it. Um, so that's probably one of the biggest things is just, I like to think of problems holistically to try and uh, understand and, and solve them. But now just a, a from a strategic perspective, right? Such a better appreciation for that. And in my opinion, It can be difficult times for members in the Guard, especially if, like I came from a state, right? To truly get that strategic level experience, right? You you get a little bit at your Joint Forces Headquarters, NGB, however, to really get that and broaden, and come up and and receive that that kind of master's or PhD level education Mm -hmm. on strategic thinking from some of the most brilliant people that you'll be around, from the senior army leadership and the staff right now, right? that is where you can bring that back to the garden to the states and truly have a a big impact, right? My current job right now, you know, we're working right with the staff or secretariat and headquarters army staff directorate principals, right? So you're engaging with, you know, those assistant secretaries, you know, the, you know, G three, G1, G4, whatever your portfolio is, like you are, you're working with those senior general officers senior SESs you know political appointees the, the assistant secretaries of the army to help you know engage with congress to help advise on how should we do those engagements to help set up meetings and briefings and then you're part of those members those meetings and briefings and you hear that information being passed along in the, in the process and the communication so again you're, you're brought to the very top to have a holistic understanding of the Army Enterprise oh, wow. and the Army National Guard Enterprise and the National Guard Bureau's Enterprise, right? It's not just, uh, especially on the Hill. You're not, when you go to the Hill, you're not an Army fellow, okay? You're a defense fellow. The Army, you know, the staff doesn't come to you and say, oh, I got a Navy issue, ask for somebody else, right? Like, no, you're, you're the defense fellow. So you are asked that question to help gain the understanding for your members because your members are worried about all the defense equities. In their, in their state or their district, yeah. right? So, I mean, it
0: sounds like an incredible opportunity. Well, like the experiences you had, just one of a kind. What, so if there's, you know, let's say I was interested in applying for a fellowship program, like at what point in time um, in my career would I go about doing that? And like, what, what would be some of your
1: advice and recommendations? Absolutely, so the, the kind of the, the sweet spot demographic for those that are applying are post company battery or troop command, um some you know if you've completed your battalion s3 time you know so senior captain to junior majors is what the the sweet spot is what they're looking for okay and uh the application process it's it's like i said competitive it's a little lengthy so every spring sometime in in late march early april um applications are due there's always a uh, message that goes out to the force sometime in i think december about the Broadening opportunities are out there and the the application deadlines and submission requirements. And you apply in that, like I said, that late March, early April timeframe. Department of the Army has, there's two boards for the fellowship program. First one meets in June and they kind of take the first selection. And that's where they pick basically the primaries and the alternates, because they have primary and alternate selectees. Um, So it's done at the Department of the Army level. And then the second one is done right in the Pentagon uh, at the at OCLL uh, and they, they do the second board and they determine who the primary and alternates are basically gonna be. There's some other nuances there, but that's the easiest way to explain it. And so you get notified in uh, late August, early September that you were selected for the program. And then you actually don't report until the following May. So it's almost a year from the time, a little over a year from the time that you apply, to the time they actually are selected and, and enter the fellowship program. So if, if you're interested in a, sorry.
0: Oh yeah, so I was just saying it's pretty lengthy. I mean, it's, it's yeah. a lengthy process then.
1: It is, something you gotta kind of, you gotta map out within your career. And it's a big commitment, right? It's four yeah. years. Um, it's an invaluable four years. Everybody looks at it as saying, you know, 44 months, That's a big time to step away. I need to be a battalion S3 and battalion XO or, and then a brigade S3 to be successful, On you know, combat arms side for, as an example. What I would challenge is say, you can make yourself unique and different and, a uh, advanced understanding of strategic level thinking, yeah. right. You can still hit your key development assignment positions. Um, the first step is always successful company battery command. Um, because that's really, where you need to separate yourself, you know, from, from those who are applying cause so many people do apply and they're extremely highly qualified people that are applying. And, um, so yeah, that, that's the biggest thing. So that, the, the opportunity is also open to NCOs. Uh, E8s and E9s can apply. The E8s that we have in our program um, are usually, you know, have finished their first sergeant time uh, and okay. have, been, have been very successful as first sergeants. There's a couple sergeant majors that were command sergeant majors and then applied and they're part of the program as well too. Um, so they just have to have the education requirements and it's all laid out in the, the announcement, right? So they have to have a, a degree because you're going to a master's degree, you have to be able to get accepted into to George Washington University's master's program. So you have to have that bachelor's degree. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, the requirements are pretty much the same. So about that, like kind of talking about the packet and
0: I mean, it's a com- really competitive process, it sounds like, what are some of the things that you would have give advice to both, you know, NCOs and officers on things they can do to set themselves up for success you know maybe they're a little bit younger in their career something they're looking forward to mm-hmm. um what are some things that they can do to you know set their resume apart per se
1: so first thing for officers and ncos successful company commander first sergeant time or if you're a, a senior E eight, and you know you don't necessarily your branch maybe doesn't have first sergeants like whatever that key development assignment for your as okay. an e8 is that's the that's the biggest one off the bat okay um the other one is communicating early to your leadership that you're thinking about doing this right because because the pro the program takes so long to get into the application process is a year you know you can be in the middle of your company command time and be, if you're you know successful if you're if you have set yourself apart from your peers mm-hmm. and you can talk to your leadership about hey i'm thinking about applying for this program after i'm done here with my company command um that's one part right because you're gonna need five letters of recommendation and wow. And those letters really help. You know, there's a big piece of the of the determination of who you are, what those letters have to say. Um, so you need you're going to need to have you know from us. You have to have a letter from the adjutant general. Um,
0: that's what I was going to ask. Where those letters come from? Are they are they all military? Are they military and?
1: Uh... It can be both. It can be both military and civilian. Okay. Um, what for National Guard? your Adjutant general needs to be one of them. You have to have one from your, from your command. So what I recommend is brigade, it's, it just says from a commander. So I recommend brigade commander because the more senior, the better. I uh, like to say, you know, as I'm advising some soldiers, like right, the more stars, the better the letter. This just, it, the, the more senior the person is to talk about your um, potential to be a future senior leader. Cause that's what, if you read the um, AR that outlines the broadening assignments, it's this one is developed for those that have potentially be senior, you know, future senior leaders. Hmm. So you need someone to who is a senior leader to say that you have potential to be a senior leader, right? Okay. That's the best way to explain it. Um, also, for members of the Guard, we're very connected, um, letters from your congressman or senator uh, are absolutely acceptable, very highly encouraged if you have a relationship as well, too, to help out. Um, and, and because it's the Congressional Fellowship Program, like they can speak to that and how how they would utilize you or whatnot um, or from your governor. So I know that for those that have applied, it's not just AGRs. Um, in my cohort, the three national guard officers that are part members of the fellowship program, um, two of us are title 32 AGR from the state. One of us is a typical, you know, MDA title 32 MDA. So there's a little bit of both then, Yep. And then if you look at all the fellows, like your group ahead of me, um they have a couple that are title 10 from ngb one from the state the year group behind me same thing they have a, a mix of agr from the state traditional soldiers from the state and tile 32 agr from i'm okay. uh, sorry tile 10 agr from ngb so they're looking for broad experiences from the guard just for with those three as well too right so so all different
0: backgrounds all different experiences i mean it yep. sounds like really if you if you're willing to set yourself up for success you seem to do well at whatever you're assigned at.
1: Exactly, because that's what they're doing. They're, they're assessing your future potential, right? So, say if you can get a second company command, you know, a lot of the um, active duty officers I serve with, they had, you know, an HHB or HHC command following their, you know, f- their line company or okay. line battery. Um, so that helps to show success at multiple commands as well. too. Take opportunities of things that are out there that might set you, make you unique or set you apart. Um, I was very involved with state partnership training in Latvia and that helped kind of set me apart as I had this unique experience of working, you know, with a bilateral affairs officer and kind of talked a little bit of a different language um, and working with other partners and allies and stuff like that. You know, deployment experience always helps to highlight that. Um, I was enlisted for 10 years. That's what I was going to ask. Like if, if that
0: because I I know you said you joined in 2000, right? So you probably did several deployments. Yeah. Um, You know, how did how does that factor in? Because it it sounds like from what you're saying, you know, they're really looking for someone that's an emissary, you know, who represents their experiences across the military, not just solely the policy piece, right?
1: Exactly. So you're right. I've done three tours myself. Um, It's not it's not a criteria that you have to have deployed but it helps you pack because it gives you something that's just a unique perspective to bring to the office about Mm -hmm. whether it's, you know, a deployment as part of the European Deterrence Initiative or to the Middle East supporting the global war on terrorism or whatever that is, something that show that you have, you know, left the state, left the nest, so to speak, right? And have a a different perspective on how things happen operationally and bring that back, you know, it's not a requirement by any stretch but it does help for sure I think I I think it helped me out a lot mine yeah I was gonna say if you had, if you had to pinpoint
0: it because I mean you said there's three a year in the guard right I'm assuming that there's a lot more people that apply um you know what would you say was was the key things for you um you know your experiences I know you kind of already touched on a few of them um
1: I think mine was certainly the, the deployments help because I had three very broad different deployments to the Middle East okay. um I had a unique perspective because I was enlisted so I my first deployment I was a team leader and squad leader and uh, I was enlisted for 10 years before I commissioned so that helped me because I was able to say hey I have you know experiences from being you know the soldier you know the the e, E1 you know executing these yeah. these policies right like all the way up through until I was uh Battalion S3 is my last position before I, I applied Um, So that helped too, I I was able to use that in my package to say, hey, I I have something that's different. How do I separate myself? That's what I'm looking for, As I'm reading applicants, right? Mm -hmm. How they separate themselves from just everybody else, right? Um, Certainly my evaluations and my letters of recommendation, that was a big piece too, right? You have to show or demonstrate that you have potential to be a future senior leader. Mm -hmm. And and part of that is what's, what's written in your evaluations, in your letters of recommendation. Um, and the third one was the the state partnership training, and, and I heard that directly from some of the people that reviewed the packets. Was um, I had a lot of experience helping establish the Joint Fires Observer Program in Latvia and working mm-hmm. with our state partnership, and that was a, a big key of again just something that's unique, that's different. Just you know, to you. Yep, yeah, I, I volunteered you know to, to help out with that, and that was something that, that grew over the course of several years. But it was again, it was just another little thing to say. This is. Why I'm different and why I should be considered compared considered to these other extremely highly qualified people that are applying. So, if there's a resource
0: that you would you know you would recommend to soldiers, um, what would it be?
1: My biggest one for me is it's so simple, but it's read. I mean, I truly enjoy it. You know, there's three different phases of of development, right? You got your self development, your institutional development, and your operational or experience development. Um, for me, it, it, it's reading. It's not just reading military history. It's reading literature from of varying you know, from, you know, articles in the Atlantic to, to books that are written.
0: Yeah, I was gonna ask if there's anything particular that you'd be like, hey, you know, must read.
1: Yeah, so I tell you right now, one thing that, that I'm reading right now that I think is a good perspective on the situation that we're in is the Department of Defense. Um, there's a book called The Kill Chain uh, by Christian Brose, who is a, he's a former Hill staffer that worked for Sarah McCain. Okay. And uh, it just came out recently. And it's, it's a good holistic understanding of near-peer competition. You know, how did our uh, advantages, you know, technolog- technological advantages erode? Um, you know, how did the wars in the Middle East impact our readiness and impact our focus in terms of Russia and China, Chinese threats? Um, but all, there's other books out there too, that you, you just go through and, and you get to look at holistically and there's several commanders list, right? But it's just having a, a world understanding. And then also, um, you know, it, it sounds simple. Again, it's something that you taught, you know, at, um, your commission source, OCS or OTC or, or whatnot, but you know, current events, like so much is happening in our world right now and it's happening yeah. so fast. Um, there are several good, you know, tools, whether it's, you know, or apps or, or a- agencies, whereas, you know, Politico, or um, if you hop on, you know, Defense News Network, the early morning brief, you know, name a resource, but that daily morning of hopping out with a traditional soldier, AGR, yeah, you know, continue to develop yourself regardless as a leader. Part of it's just understanding what's happening around you um, as well, too. So those are the mm-hmm. two things that I, I always stress okay. to, to my folks.
0: Now, Second part to that question, I guess, which is if you had one piece of advice for a junior leader, you know, NCO officer across the formation, you know, what would it be?
1: So for me, um, your people are your best resource, right? Haven't haven't seen how the other services operate versus the Army and the Army National Guard and the National Guard you know, holistically mm-hmm. okay. both Air and Army. It, it, our people are our number one resource. And soldiers are the best lie detector test I've ever met in my life, right? They, they know when someone is being real with them, when they're being genuine, right? As a young leader, listening to your soldiers, the mm-hmm. E4s need, e, you know, E1 to E4 sometimes have the best ideas. Listen to your non commissioned officers and learn from their experience. Like we've had so many deployments and they're fading, right? Number of deployments, you're seeing a lot more lieutenants and captains that haven't had a deployment experience
0: yeah I mean I'm in I'm in that boat like yeah. I've never had the opportunity yet so.
1: and, that, and that's not their fault but the but you have NCOs that are extremely experienced right pull that from them right and just be genuine with them right show that understanding of, of hey you know I, yes you're you're in charge you're the leader you're the platoon leader you're the you know XO, company commander whatever um but when you're genuine and you really show them that you care and you're listening and then when you provide that guidance right like you build that relationship with your subordinates to a point where um, you're able to effectively communicate, relate to them, it helps out immensely. And that's the biggest thing for young leaders right now is understanding, hey, I don't have the opportunities that some of these NCOs or soldiers did. How do I draw that from them? And and it's very similar to when I joined in 2000. Um, You had quite a few, or not quite a few, you had a few Desert Storm vets still walking around and you really latched on to hear what they had to say based on their deployment experience from Desert mm-hmm. Storm. Um, but a lot of the company grade officers didn't have that opportunity, so they didn't have that experience. And when we deployed our first time, we relied heavily on on them. So just use them as your as your resource. So another thing I would recommend to young leaders, about too, is volunteer. There there are so many opportunities out there that you uh, need to take advantage of, okay. whether it's Trying to, you know, volunteer to help out, taking additional orders if you're a traditional soldier, like hopping on orders to help out with exercises, participate in training outside of traditional annual training, um, trying to get involved with your state partnership program, if you, you know, whatever that may be and what you do with it. Um, Opportunities potentially with deployments, look at the broadening opportunities that they have, not just for like the, the fellowship program, but there's other things out there where you can go work down at the Warrior Training Center in Georgia, right? Is an, is an example, and you can get some very unique schools, right? They try new things to help add more experiences to your kit bag. And a lot of that is just raising your hand and saying, I would like to do that. You know, I can show up and do more, whatever fits in your schedule. I know it's difficult depending on if you're a student yeah. or your, your civilian career, but whatever you're able to do, um, they'll help you on both military side and your personal life as well too.
0: Sir, thank you so much for coming today and sharing some of these incredible, unique experiences with us. Tune in to Leaders Recon over the next few weeks as we bring in today's leaders and pioneers to discuss their experiences, share their wisdom, and help you grow as a leader. We will also be announcing opportunities for you to sharpen your skills and expand your toolbox as a member in today's Army National Guard. See you next time. If you would like more information on any of the topics discussed today, please visit our social media pages in the links below. If you like this episode of Leaders Recon, please subscribe below and leave us a five star review. You can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.